Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back, everyone, including my good friend, Alan Joachim. How are you, dude? Dude, it's good to be back, although I did have a great time and, you know... It, it, you know, it's it's good to be home and you know, be able to sleep in your own bed. Because I'll tell you, one of the hotels I stayed in, not clean, not clean, and and unfortunately, you know which one it was. It's the one with no country, uh, with all no the country blood, for no country for old men. All the blood splatter, right? Yeah, yep. I I stayed in the exact same hotel that uh, that that uh, Josh Brolin stayed in uh, in the movie. Uh, it was room one thirty eight. Yeah, yeah. So I I didn't see I didn't see the uh, vents up on up on the top. So vent was not there. So I I did check to see. Hey, you know, th- is it possible he stashed the uh, millions of dollar briefcase? But I wasn't there. Well, if that was the case, I don't think you would be with me. I think you'd be off somewhere else. Uh, yeah, I think Anton Chigurh would have uh, would have found me. But you know, speaking of finding, I found a lot of places from that movie. Uh, I saw that the gas station. I made it to that gas station, and uh, but it, you know, it wasn't just that. It was uh, uh, there. There were a lot of things. I went there to do kind of like a Manhattan Project um, video, uh, or not a well. You know, I did take some videos, but lots of photos, which we posted on Facebook, and I think you posted some on Instagram. Uh, made it to Los Alamos. Made it to the Trinity site on the in the White Sands Missile Range. Um, if you if you saw the movie Contact or Independence Day 2010, uh, the the I think it's called the Carl Yansky Very Large Array. You know where all those uh, uh, dishes are pointing up into space. Uh, Lincoln County War, Fort Stanton, Fort Sumner. You know where. Billy the Kid was gunned down. Um, went into Lincoln, did a lot of pictures, a lot of videos, uh, and and went to several other places. Uh, Civil War. If you're a good, bad, and ugly fan, you know the, the uh, that took place in uh, 1862 in New Mexico. So I went to a couple of the battlefields there. Glorieta Pass, highly recommend. Um, and also made it to Roswell. Got my little mug, and I've got yeah. Picked up a little <laughs> friend there, <laughs> so now I, now I have my family. You've got uh, daughter and son there. Um, so uh, and 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 um, also I went to a couple of places because I know you and I we talked about discussing the Second Amendment and some of the you know what's going on with our culture and society mental problems. Um, I went to uh, Uvalde to um, take photos. And videos of the elementary school, but I also went to Sutherland Springs, where that um, that Air Force guy went and shot up a bunch of people at a church. And while I was there, one of the survivors came out and we spoke, and I actually got to uh, interview her for it was about a I, I don't know how long the interview is, but um, but we're going to um, put it out one of these days. That'll be, yeah, that'll be good, man. I'm glad you had a good trip. Um, a lot of really cool places that you went to, which you always find really cool places to go to. Um, so, but I'm, I'm glad you're back. Uh, the show is not the same without you, for sure. Uh, it's, I don't want to say it's boring, but it's not the same. Um, well, well, you know, I felt, the, I felt the same way when I interviewed uh, uh, that judge, uh, Zabunstra. When when I had to do the interview by myself, and it was like you know, I feel like um, 
you know, it's the Tonight Show, and where's Johnny Carson? I'm sitting here, uh, I'm Ed McMahon, and having to do uh, all the work. <laughs> just, just wasn't the same. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, we're back together again, and it feels so good. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to us, whether you're just watching on YouTube, subscribe, click the bell. Um, also, if you are listening to us strictly on the audio version, uh, we are pretty much everywhere that you can listen to a podcast. So, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Google, uh, you name it, and claim it, uh, we are on there. So, if you haven't yet there, subscribe, uh, leave us a rating and review, preferably five stars and a glowing review that helps us. Um, also let your friends and family, uh, coworkers know about us. We've got a few documentaries out, uh, with the Epic TV, their streaming Epic times, uh, streaming platform, Epic TV. Uh, we did the George Kalu. It's our first Full-length World War II documentary. Uh, it's the War Stories of George Khalil. That is out. Uh, you can check that out. Also, my per two personal documentaries that I did, uh, one on JFK Jr. and another one on American communism. So, uh, Alan, I will tell you this. For this episode, I was a little nervous because we've, we're have our guest is out in Paris. So, they are f seven hours ahead of us. So... We usually do our recording at 3 p.m. Central Time. That would have been 10 o'clock his time. So we adjusted and we are going at noon. And I was a little nervous yesterday because there were some yards that the grass was a little high. And I was like, man, there better not be a bunch of lawn mowing going on uh, during. I don't think they're going to do it at high noon. I think uh, they're going to wait until it cools off a bit. Maybe that's the reason why they get us. Well, I will tell you this. Yesterday, it's like all the lawn guys came out of the woodwork and started mowing all the lawns, uh, including my neighbor, which I was a little nervous because her, her lawn was a little out of control. They all came out yesterday. And so I'm thinking we may be home free for this this podcast. So I'm I'm excited. I was like, man, and I had just told my neighbor, I was like, I don't know. We're we're recording at noon and people are gonna go nuts. I know it. Uh, it is just, you know, my lot in life, but. Well, you know, I'm hoping that my uh, neighbors upstairs, uh, don't stampede because believe me, they, they make some noise. I mean, I even have some cracks up on my ceiling, so I need to, I need to, I need to buy a house, you know, go, maybe I can go buy a house in West Texas. I really liked it out there. Yeah, maybe finally, ma fi finally made it to Pecos, Texas. I've always wanted to go to Pecos, Texas. Or you could just go uh, get on the uh, the Trinity site and live there among the. Uh... You know, I I I was there only for about thirty minutes, thirty minutes, forty five minutes, and left because, you know, you know, plutonium two thirty nine has a half life of twenty one thousand years, and even though I had you know sunblock SPF thirty, I I really don't think. It was that effective because I did walk out of there kind of red yeah. and glowing. Wow. So, you know. Beautiful. Well, you, you, you look like you've, you've tamed down uh, now. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're going to get on with the show and have our guest join us. <clears throat> our guest uh, this episode is Patrick Vale. He is an Oscar M. Rubauzen Distinguished Fellow at Yale Law School. You like I said skill? Law skill? Law school? And Are you trying to speak French? What, uh, yeah, it may be rubbing off on me already. Uh, he's also a research professor 
Um, he's a research professor at the National Center for Scientific Research in France. He's the founder and president of Libraries Without Borders. I'd like to get in contact with those people, uh, see if we can't donate some books. I don't know, or have some books donated to us. Anyways, um, he is also. Sorry, the author- I, I got nothing to spare. Yeah, I know. I was talking about you the other day. I was like, dude, this guy's got nothing but folio society. You know, nothing touches his skin but croc skin and silk. So, uh, Patrick is also the author of The Sovereign Citizen, uh, How to Be French, and his latest book, The Madman in the White House, Sigmund Freud, Ambassador Bullet, and the Lost Psychobiography of Woodrow Wilson. So, we've got Patrick waiting patiently so we are going to get started with patrick vale he is out in paris as aforementioned patrick how are you doing my friend fine you thanks dustin allen to have me on 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 your on your talk you got it hey we're we're excited to to talk to you about it because the whole wilsonian world war one in between like the inner inner uh, war period that's a, a conversation that alan and i love to have uh, with each other, with, with guests. Um, and so you've written a, a book called The Medman in the White House about uh, the psychobiography that was written by William Bullitt and Sigmund Freud on Woodrow Wilson. Um, my, my first question is about, about more or less the crux of the book, which is Woodrow Wilson working so hard uh, to get the Treaty of Versailles taken care of and put forth, and then he sabotages that very effort that he had put so many hours and months into. Um, how and, and why did he do that? So that was the question that Freud wanted to understand, and he was the founder, the father of psychoanalysis. And, of course, Wilson, well, he, had never, he never met Wilson, so it was not a psychoanalysis of Wilson you wanted to do because psychoanalysis, you need to have the person beside you, laying, talking about his dreams and her dreams, etc. So when William Bullitt, who has been his patient in 1926, 1927, came to him and said, I would like you to write something on, on Wilson because Freud has thought about it. Freud said, I cannot do anything if I don't have historical information, testimonies about Wilson. And if I get good material, we will do it together. And he told me all started. So Blit used to be a journalist and an, an excellent journalist. He was also uh, f- from the upper class of Philadelphia. He was a lot of introduction in the diplomatic uh, milieu, etc. He got a lot of great interviews of the people who has worked with Wilson, the most intimate advisor and friends, his doctor, his chief of staff, his secretary, uh, his uh, biographer, uh, the main advisor of, of Wilson was Colonel House. They all talked to him very intimately, so he got a lot of incredible material, and he got something that Nobody had at that time, which was a diary of the colonial house. Every day, House will sit with his secretary and dictate everything that has happened between him and Wilson. And 
That was a secret diary at that time. He got, but he got the authorization to access the diary. So what happened is that then there is another dimension which permits Freud to, to do, to decide to do the work, the book. It is Wilson, contrary to many people and including and many, most of chief of state, talk to some intimate friends in the way you talk to a psychoanalyst. He will tell uh, House, I couldn't sleep last night. I, I dreamt about Princeton. It's a nightmare. And then he tell the story of the dream, etc. So that's an incredible material for Freud. All this information. And Wilson would do that with letters he sent to intimate friends. So Bully gathered all this material and together with Freud, they decided to write not a psychoanalysis because that cannot be done because the, it, it, they have never met in person with Freud, but a, a psycho by a, a, a psychological portrait, a psychobiography, which will use the, I mean, the information brought by psychoanalysis uh, to the datas that Bullitt has collected that are absolutely incredible and and are still unknown until my book is published because nobody has has been to these papers of Bullitt, to these files, where you have all these testimonies of, of Wilson doctor, Wilson biographer that are absolutely incredible. How did you, how did you come across these papers? The study is, is incredible. So I am teaching at Yale Law School since 2008 for, in the fall semester as a, as a visiting professor. In, the, in the August 2014, I enter a used bookshop. I found this published biography because the biography was published in 1966, but and I, I read it as a student in French the year, uh, years later. Oh, I said, that's great. I have now the original version. I bought it for $6. And I come back home, I open, I say, oh, Colonel House, Colonel, I forgot him. And Colonel House had become a friend of Georges Clemenceau, who was a French premier. And I was about to publish the, the article Clemenceau wrote when he was from 1960, 18, 1865 to 1869, when he was a journalist in Washington and New York for the French newspaper. He was in the US reporting uh, on the aftermath of Lincoln assassination. Incredible article that has been translated in English and published in 1929. So I was working on the correspondence between House and Clemenceau. I said, maybe there is bullet correspondence. I type bullet on the search engine of Yale, and I discover the bullet papers are at Yale. And I immediately discovered that there were some boxes related to the, the book he wrote with Freud. I, I run, order the, uh, order the boxes, work on them. Like three weeks later, I found the original manuscript that was not at all designed that way in the papers. It was designed like first draft of the manuscript or something like that. It was written like that. Because if it was the original manuscript, I could figure it was because it was signed by the two authors at the end of each chapter. How how different how different was the 1966 version compared to the original? Much, and he said, "What I tell you—that's the story of the book." Then I said, 
I want to understand how they work on the book and why Bullet cut it or revise it 300 times. That's, that is the enigma I wanted to resolve. And that's the story of seven, eight years of work to find the solution. I want to mention two things before we continue on, on what Freud was doing um, to go back, because many of our listeners might not be too familiar with what the sabotage was towards the Treaty of Versailles. Now, um, and, and also I want to mention about Colonel Edward House, because um, we've, we've discussed him once before, and you know he was the diplomat that sounded the alarm that Europe is about to explode. And he predicted a, um, not so much a world war, but he predicted a huge war, which turned into a world war in Europe. Um, on the Treaty of Versailles part, Wilson submitted 14 points, which seemed pretty reasonable. It wasn't an attack so much on Germany, like this is going to be their comeuppance for losing, but it was more of a futuristic view of diplomacy and how, you know, how the world can react, such as, uh, you know, people can live their own lives and, and, you know, have their own nations. So when you say that uh, Wilson was sabotaging his own work on the Treaty of Versailles, is this what you're referring to, the betrayal that the 14 points weren't being used, that it was more of like, you know, Germany is going to pay and we're going to make him pay? That's a great question. Because when I started the project, I thought exactly what, what you described. There were the 14 points, and then there is a, a will, especially coming from the French, to impose harsh reparation to Germany. And when I made my research, I discovered I had not understood anything about the treaty. And I think, I tell you frankly, that many of the readers who would like to, to read the book will say, I didn't understand the treaty either. Why? So the 14 points, when the, when the armistice is signed, November 11, 1918, in advance and to, to permit the signature of the armistice, the Allies have submitted to the, the, the German the condition and, of the armistice. And among the conditions was the approval of the 40 points that has been approved by the French and the, and the British and the Italian allies of the United States with some additional issues or mention like reparation uh, and some debate on the freedom of the sea. But so the 14 points, as you mentioned, are the basis of the armistice for the allies and for the defeated uh, uh, continental empire. Then you start the negotiation, and Wilson, in the negotiation between the Allies, uh, has one will, I would say one quasi-obsession. It is to have the League of Nations, to have the League of Nations uh, decided as to bring eternal peace to the world. That is his will. He feels it's his mission. So there is a lot of stories behind this so he goes to Paris, he goes to Paris, and he spends six months in Paris. He lives six months in Paris in two successive temporary White House. And there he negotiates. And so he got approval for the League of Nations, but when he, 
In the middle of the six months, he comes back to Washington, D.C. And then he finds that the Republicans are not very eager to say in a treaty that in case of an aggression against a neighboring member of the League of Nations, for example, they mentioned Russia, Bolshevik Russia attacking Poland, that the U.S. should automatically go to war, which was there was a, there was an article that has been put in the treaty by Wilson, who could be interpreted that way. So when Wilson's come back, he accepts to retreat a little. He says, okay, we can we react in case of aggression, but you need the unanimity of the council. And the unanimity means the US has a veto right in case you have to go to war. But then there was an issue raised by the French that the French wanted an automatic reaction in case of German aggression. So Wilson and Lloyd George say, okay, let's have a special treaty with the French. And that would be, that would be so to make its things perhaps clearer, the League of Nations was the UN before the UN. And the special treaty with France was NATO before NATO. It was a treaty that Wilson and Lloyd George signed with Clemenceau saying, in case of German aggression, the, the US will come with his military and the, the UK will come to the support of France. Then there was a reparation, but who wanted the reparation? Not the French, the Brit. Why did the Brit want the high reparation? Because if you have low reparation, only Belgium and France who has been the ground of the battle was being really physically destroyed, would get the money. And the Brit wanted money for Canada, for New Zealand, for Australia, for South Africa, all the dominions who have been sending troops to the battle. So they needed very high operation. And Wilson said no, 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 for months until he was convinced by a South African delegate called Jan Sons to accept very high reparation. But I would say the, the reparation could be adapted to the capacity of Germany. That was in the treaty. So the reparation was not a big scandal in terms of the, if, if the US would have been in the treaty, the US would have been presiding the commission on reparation and Wilson and the next US president could have said, we want lower reparation and they would have been deciding much about these issues. What happened is that when Wilson's come back to Washington, his enemy in DC, Cabot Lodge, who are the who are the, who are the majority leader, Republican majority leader, says, okay, you say we have a right of veto for declaration of war in the treaty, but let's write it as a reservation that in case of declaration of war, the US Constitution has to be respected and it's Congress who will decide if we go to war or not. That was the main, main uh, uh, reserve of interpretation, reservation made by Lodge. And because it came from Lodge, and that is the interpretation of Freud, Wilson opposed, he didn't want to sign a document with the name of Lodge. He said, I don't want the name of Lodge the same document as me. And he ordered the Democrats to vote against the treaty he has himself negotiated six months in Paris. So what happened? Then 
the, the military treaty of defense collapse. The French lost their military support with the NATO, the new NATO collapsing. Clemenceau lost the election to the French presidency, is replaced with a harsh uh, leader as prime minister, Poincaré, who used the reparation clause to, uh, which it is what remained to the French, uh, to uh, occupy the West Bank of the Rhine uh, in 1923. And then the, there is the beginning of the collapse and, the, and the, the, the pass to the Second World War. So that is the story. I, I, made, I made it very short. I'm sorry if it was too long. But that <laughs> is what happened. That the man who sits six months in a temporary White House in a foreign country, and we imagine today the, the president of the United any president going to a foreign country, six months, he was running the White House from Paris. He, get, he got what he wanted, the League of Nations, a role a world role for the for the United States, and then he ordered his friend in the Senate to vote against the treaty. So it's why some people beside him in his inner circle say he has become mad. And when did he have the stroke? It was shortly after that, was it not? He got the stroke when he uh, started campaigning in the Western state. He wanted to campaign against Congress. Uh, and he got the... I mean, no, he, he had some... The stroke, he became ill. He was sent back on, on the order of his doctor to his to the White House. And then two days later, he had a stroke. But his collapse, intellectual collapse, came earlier. And that's the story. I mean, there is a, it's a debate. That's my interpretation, my opinion. You can always have a debate, but I tell uh, the story and all the data for the debate in the book. Let me ask you, because you write in you write in the book, which the whole psychoanalysis is really interesting, but it seems like there were some people who were able to psychoanalyze Woodrow Wilson before Freud did. And I think because you mentioned General Smuts, it seemed at least in your book, that Lloyd George was able to read Woodrow Wilson well enough to know how to go about convincing him of the reparations situation and using General Smuts in order to get... How did how did Lloyd George even figure out like that would be a way to get Wilson on board? How did that happen? Well, Lloyd George was... Very, a very smart politician, British politician. You know, he was a liberal who succeeded in running a conservative House of Commons. He was, he was a prime minister with a majority of conservatives who has chosen him, even if he was from the liberal party. He was extraordinary in reading the minds of his colleagues. And he noticed that any time he would ask something to Wilson or the Australian Prime Minister, Wilson will say no. But anytime General Smoots will came will come with the, I mean the same claim, Wilson will say yes. I if it even say to House he wrote, if it comes from General Smoots, I can agree. So at the key moment, and that's the key moment of the of the of the negotiation, Lloyd George comes to him and says, if you don't agree on higher position, 
I have to resign. I will be defeated in in the in House of Commons. I will lose my prime, prime ministership. And Wilson said, "That's a great way for a politician uh, to to get to be thrown out of office on principle. Should be very happy for that." And two days later, Lloyd sent Jan Smoots, and Jan Smoots has Wilson signed for high repression. And then you have the advisor, the Dallas, uh, John Foster Dallas, who is the economic advisor of, say, are you, it's completely irrational what you have accepted. And Wilson say, rationality, rationality, who cares about rationality? Say that. That was not, that was before he had a, a flu. It was not after. It was, it was in April, beginning of April 1919. So it was like, Lloyd George has understood uh, the psychology of Wilson. Yes, I agree with you. You know, Jan Smuts, I've read a lot about him. Um, he uh, fought in German East Africa and actually became friends with the opposing general, um, uh, von Leto Vorbeck, if I can remember his name. Um, but, you know, uh, I wanted to go back on something in regards to Bullet, and he had noticed, and, and you... You may need to correct me on some of this. Um, he had noticed on the passage to Paris that Wilson wasn't sharing his his what he what his intentions were in Paris, and he was spending all his time with his wife. And Bullet, from what I have read, Bullet went and told him, "Hey, man, you need to you need to talk to these uh, these other people. You know, don't concentrate everything in your hands." And I mean, where I mean, okay. My question is in regards, if you can confirm what I just said, but also where did Edward House come in? Because I know he was kind of a big deal. And my understanding is that uh, House was kind of a mentor for uh, for Bullet. What's... Yeah, so so you, it's a very good point. So so what you describe is that Bullet is on the boat, the same boat that brings Wilson to Paris uh, at the beginning of December, 1918. House is already in Paris because he had negotiated that the 14 point would be the basis of the treaty. And Wilson is so happy for that. He's becoming the world leader he wanted to be, the world arbiter, because of the 14 point being the basis of the peace of the world. And it was negotiated by House in Paris. So he comes with a diplomatic delegation from the State Department, including Bullitt. But Bullitt had already noticed that Wilson was not a very good strategist. Let me, there is a story I tell in the book. When the Bolsheviks takes power in Russia, they sign a peace treaty with the enemy, Germany. So that is, that put in danger their allies, the Russian allies, who are the Brits and the French. And, and at that time, the US are also have joined the war on the side of the Brits and the French. So the Japanese wants to send an army to Russia. And Wilson is asked about it, and he said, yeah, okay, no problem, I approve. And Bullitt saw the notes and said, what? Are you crazy? If we do that, the Russian has signed a treaty with Germany, but they, they decided to become neutral 
if we invite them, they will join the German on our side. It's completely crazy. So he, he called House and say, stop this note to the Japanese government and to the, the, the and, and, and House stopped the note and Rison reversed his order the day after. So, but it was very obsessed with how Wilson was managing the, the diplomatic strategy for having his will, the 14 points become the reality. So he, he asked the president to share his view. He was just having, he was going to the movies every evening with his wife and he was not working with the American team. He has brought on the boat to be part of the negotiation in Paris. So it's why Bullitt asked, sit beside him one night in the movie theater, say, you know, we are all angry and frustrated. You should have a, you should meet us. And the day after, Wilson meet them. So you have finally post, more or less, um, post Wilson, obviously post the presidency, um, and several years after his presidency, Bullitt reaches out to Sigmund Freud. Bullitt wants to take the information that he knows about Wilson and conduct, more or less, as, as stated in your book, a psychobiography. Um, Freud is, is hesitant about that, but one, why is he hesitant about that? And two, um, well, why, why is he hesitant about that? First off, I think he's hesitant because as you, you asked earlier, he never met Wilson. He has never done this kind of psychobiography, but with, uh, Freud is a man of challenge. So it's a new challenge for him. He's a little bored, he's sick. If Bullitt can bring him all this information finally brought, he say, let's do it. And it's what happened. At, at the beginning, he, he, he would not write without knowing anything. He had some impression because he was uh, he, an Austrian uh, submitted to the, I mean, waiting for the new, the, the treaty that was imposed to, to Austria and, and the rest of the defeated uh, countries. He had his impression, but he wanted facts, and Bullitt was able to bring him facts that was extraordinary. Who all at that time, because you say he brought out facts, so he went and interviewed people. Um, who all did he interview? Who all did he talk to? And who all questioned Wilson's mental fitness uh, towards the end of his presidency? He interviewed, for example, uh, people like uh, Ray Baker, who was a biographer who, to whom Wilson has given all his papers and who has started publishing two volumes of a, 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 an eight-volume biography of Wilson. And so Baker knew a lot, and but he knew a lot, but he didn't wrote, he didn't write in his book all he knew. And that is what he, he told Bullock things about Wilson's psychology, he never wrote. That's an extraordinary testimony. Then you have a doctor, Dr. Grayson, who was an admiral. An admiral who had become, Wilson told him at the end of his life, you are my only friend. So he would talk to him like the most intimate friend. And Grayson has a diary. Where is Grayson's diary? In Stanton, Virginia. And I went there. And I made the copy I needed to make, the photos of the archives, and it's an incredible source of 
information. And Grayson gave Bullitt a lot of information. There is a guy called Dudley Mallon. Dudley Mallon was a chief of staff of Wilson when he campaigned for, to become the governor of New Jersey in 1910. And he was an intimate. Uh, Wilson loved him, really. And then, so these people gave Bullitt a lot of interesting information. There, there, there are other people. There is a guy who is very important. He's called Lincoln Colcorn. He was a journalist in, in DC for the nation and before and for another. And he is the one who told Bullitt, he wrote to Bullitt, is the president is unbalanced. I know from psychologists, etc., is has become nuts. So so that was in February, March 1919. So you have all this testimony from the inner circle people, and you have also the so to make it I mean, perhaps a little short, but clear. I think that in March 1920, when after Wilson had ordered the Democrat to vote against the treaty, most people in Washington and people who follow politics in the country think he has become nuts because he has destroyed his own baby. And he has destroyed because the treaty of imagine today the UN and NATO without the US. Yeah. It would not be any more UN or NATO. So it was exactly what happened with the Treaty of Versailles. The Treaty of Versailles and the Treaty of Guarantee, which is a small NATO dimension, was designed to have the US at the center of the power. And the whole balance of the peace of the world was organized around the US having this new international role. And the, the president of the United States, who have, who have uh, 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 you know, imposed his condition and negotiation with all the leaders of the world, say, oh, finally, I'm not there. It's finished. What, did he? Okay, here's where, you know, President so Wilson... I, I mean, sorry, but I, it's not how you understand, or, or I was understanding the situation and where people, people are told that this is the Republican who blocked the treaty and Wilson was a nice guy who wanted the peace for the world. It's not exactly the story. But President Wilson was trying to overstep constitutional powers. Um, you know, we... You're right. we You're right. So, so what... Is, it, is this why? Is this the reason why they did this? Because they're sitting thinking, you know, why does he want to make the United States this you know, like create like this hegemony around the world with the U.S. being the leader when it goes opposed to what our Constitution says, such as the declarations of war. We can't, you know, we can't go to war unless Congress approves. I mean, it, it's, it says it in there. So is this, is this why? It's a great question. And I think you, if you have read my book, you have a kind of answer. He thought he was the new Christ. In a meeting with Lloyd George and Clemenceau and the other chief, Lloyd George reports in his memoir that Wilson said, the Christ did well on principle, but he was not very good in implementation. So I'm here to, to make things happen. The Christ. So Lloyd George says, I look around and saw the eyes of all these Christians 
around the table thinking, my God, what's going on? This is a new God there. I mean, I think he was thinking of, a, of an, uh, he was, and, and when you say the Christ did not, do, did not do a good job, you are like his father. So you're like, like God the father. He was now. He was thinking the U.S. Constitution doesn't matter much. In I don't emphasize on that, but he took a lot of the energy of the U.S. Secretary of State and all the American diplomats around Wilson to have him admit that he needed the approval of Congress to go to the League of Nations. Have you read the story in the book when in November he got the opposition of the? Of his, uh, he said. He, he, he was ready to send a letter to 56 senators asking them to resign. And then there will be by election in, the, in their state. And if they, if they win the election, it will be like a referendum. I mean, it, it isn't, doesn't fit with a, with a state, different state constitution. He was not anymore feeling any limit in the constitution in some way. Or at least you would say, that the will of the people, the, of the he thought he had, and that, that's that's a very important point. He thought that if he had the will of the American people, that could, that was more important than the respect the, of the formal constitution. And so it's why he goes to the uh, in his trip, and he when he comes back from the trip, he's convinced, and he was always convinced until the defeat the uh, Democratic candidate and a harsh defeat in the election of 1920, that he had the people with him against the Republican. So you you mentioned um, in the book and just, just now that Wilson had this uh, Christ complex and he viewed himself sort of like the savior of, of the world. And anybody sort of looking on the outside, uh, looking in from the outside would say, well, he's just an egomaniac who doesn't really um, have the pulse of one Congress and two the people uh, thinking that he can push through this legislation, this treaty uh, via Congress and then also thinking, I know that the people are with me and then obviously we find out in the landslide victory for Warren Harding uh, that no, the people were not on board with what he was saying. And if we we just take it there, you can just easily blame it on, well, he was an egomaniac and he thought that he was much smarter than everybody else, which to an extent is true. But Sigmund Freud takes it to a much deeper level where he ties in Wilson's father. And I thought that that was fascinating because you tie in that he had this view of his father and almost everything that he did. And you mentioned the God, the father, uh, the, the son of God, the Christ, and you have Henry Cabot Lodge, who he sort of sees as this father figure who he hates. He eventually becomes to hate. But then you also have General Smuts, who is a father figure who he adores. Can you explain a little bit of the complexity that Freud identifies with this situation? So that's a very, that's a key point of the book and of the finding of Frozen Bullet is that it seems that Wilson, and he felt it himself, he said, I'm, I'm afraid to reproduce what happened to me in Princeton. When he was president of Princeton, 
he had a love friend who was his colleague. He would spend days talking with him, evening the two couples would be friends, etc., etc. And one day they disagree on the plan that Wilson had to get rid of of the eating clubs, which are existing in Princeton. And his friend, Professor Hibben, disagreed. And he, he stood in a faculty meeting and said, I disagree. And from that, from that moment, first of all, Wilson cannot, had a nightmare, cannot sleep. He think about it permanently. And he, he, and he would never talk anymore to Hibben. I mean, he would. The, 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 it was a total wreck of their deep friendship. That was one person. And there was another person, Dean West, who was a dean of the graduate school. And he wanted to expand the graduate school. And Wilson didn't want anybody to have another kind of, I mean, uh, an, I mean another power within Princeton University. So he became obsessed with Dean West's project to the point that he lied about what he has told or said or written uh, in previous meeting of the of, of the board of Princeton to the point that the the the, the faculty the, the board of Princeton when Dean West brings a lot of funds to develop the graduate school in the interest of Princeton they are fed up with Wilson they are almost fire him at the moment where he jump uh, to the governatory, uh, 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 the the race for governor of New Jersey in 2010. So what Freud, if you take these two figures of Hibben and West, you can uh, add, uh, show that they are reproduced in in house for Hibben and Cabot Lodge for West. House was his dearest friend. He was spending. He, he would tell him everything about his life. He would, he would uh, share his inner, uh, I would say, I've never had a friend like that who tell me everything about his inner feelings, and depression and nightmares, etc., etc. Until they broke completely in March, 1919. And perhaps the, the destiny of the world was made in a bad shape at that moment. Then you have who is like West. So what is Freud saying? He says, uh, the adoration, the official adoration of the father was so exaggerated that it, it was camouflaging probably a great anger that was not expressed and was expressed towards father's figures all along the life of, of Wilson. And the great love for House or, and, that, and beforehand by to Hibben was reflecting a kind of uh, need for having a male friend uh, that was not uh, consciously in his mind. And the the interesting uh, the, 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 the interesting thing is that I discovered something that that's my my i would say what i add personally to the interpretation is that freud and Belize he broke with his people when they disagree with him 
And I say, no, they are mistaken here. They, he broke when they are humiliating him in public. And I discovered in some papers of the historian who have been wor working on Wilson, some testimonies of Wilson cousin who said that the father was horrible, was perverse, was rude with him when he was a kid. The father was humiliating him in family meetings and in, uh, in front of brothers and sisters. And of course, that anger was, this anger was toward the father humiliation never ex was ex expressed against the father and it came out against father's figure. That's, uh, I mean, I try to make it short, but that is a frame and I'm, thank you for having raised, it's a very important question. I wanna ask you, Bullet and Freud, you mentioned in your book, um, Bullet and Wilson have falling out. Freud never meets Wilson, but he, Wilson falls out of favor with Freud. Um, starts out, you know, promising, but falls out of favor with Freud. So Freud is really not a fan of, of Woodrow Wilson. Both of them don't seem neutral to Wilson when they start on this psychobiography. Was it fair for them to write this? Very good point. I think, first of all, Freud wrote it. I decided not to write on Wilson because I hated him and I, I could not be fair. What happened? It is that I'm not, I don't have the evidence, but I am making the, the hypothesis that when Bullitt did his psychoanalysis with Freud in 1926, he was already writing a play on Wilson and the Treaty of Versailles. So he would talk to Freud about Wilson a lot during the session. And Freud started to understand the man much more than he had before. And he says himself, I, I, I ended not hating him at, at all. He was more having more understanding of him. And if he decided to write the book, I, I, I feel that, first of all, it is because he has the data gathered by Bullitt, and also because he felt he was not in that spirit that prevented him when he was asked by an, uh, another biographer of Wilson called Hale, to write some, in 1922 about Wilson, and he said, I cannot because I don't, I hate him. He, his mind has changed. You know, his mind changes, his opinion of Clemenceau has changed too. So he, yes, you are right. He started with that state of mind. And and so, and Bullitt is very complicated because Bullitt was fan of Wilson. And he was a Wilsonian all around, all along his life. And he, when he joined Roosevelt, they are both Wilsonian who has regretted that Wilson failed. And you know, Roosevelt was in Paris, as Churchill was, has learned the lessons that he had to put Republican in his cabinet and not fight the Republican, etc. All the, all the things that Wilson did badly, I mean, Roosevelt corrected them because of the lesson he has taken from the fail, uh, Wilson's failure. Did, uh, do you agree with what Freud came up with? Yes, I said in my book that globally I agree. I have this correction I'm making. For example, they didn't understand the role of the Hans They didn't understand 
the fact that the father was humiliating his son, his son's fathers. So there was some correction to make to the interpretation. But what I think they are right, and I think we, is that, you know, you, me, every, every day, we are making psychological interpretation of our leaders. He's like that, she's like that. It's in a, in a daily conversation among citizens. We are doing psychological statement, interpretation. If he has done that, it's because he's like that, etc. And you have the founder of the psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud, who happens to meet an American who brings him all this information about a man who is extraordinary, Wilson, in a way that he tells everything that happened to his inner life, to his best friend, Colonel House, to other friends, they take notes. That's an extraordinary material. And it's why it's an extraordinary book in some way, because it's so, it's so rare. Do you think uh, Biden or Trump talk to their uh, friends the way Wilson talked to his friends? Not at all. So when people ask me, what do you think about Trump or Biden? I say, I don't have the documents. I don't have the testimony. But on Wilson, we have them. And that's, that's what's made the story incredible. That is so rare to have all this information about a man who was not only the president of the United States, but who, who, who led the United States in the World War, First World War, and then led the Treaty of Peace, and then collapsed it in the Congress. So this is an incredible story. And that's oh. something, you, you, I mean, who whoever will have this... Uh, opportunity to have all these documents and this testimony about the president of any president. I guess, uh, you know, Bullet didn't uh, burn any bridges because he ended up becoming the uh, ambassador to the Soviet Union, U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union. So, and... Uh, so do, you, do you want us to talk about that? Uh, I think, I mean, it's an interesting story. I mean, I know what around uh, a little bit later after that, Freud had to flee uh, Austria because of the Anschluss. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they they both... Uh... That's very important because what happens is that they finished their manuscript in April 32. At that time, of course, the presidential campaign for the election of 1932 has started and and through House has joined the Roosevelt campaign. And Roosevelt has no, don't have many diplomats. All the diplomats are Republican in the department. So he, uh, but it is immediately brought to the inner circle of Roosevelt. And so he cannot publish the book because uh, his, his career will end immediately. So they postpone the publication of the book. And he negotiated with Roosevelt the recognition of Soviet Union, and he's sent as the first ambassador to Soviet Union. We didn't tell that story to, to our listeners that he had been a secret envoy in February 1919 to Lenin, sent by House and by Lloyd George. So he had a, a very high reputation among the Soviets when he arrived in, in, in Moscow. And then he discovered the horror of Stalinism. And he becomes, in the State Department and in the, in the di American diplomacy, just 
I would say 1935, the leader of the of the of the warners. Do you say warners in English? The people who warn the the leaders about communists. Is of is fighting communists. We think it's like it's a it's a new religion that is willing to win the world uh, uh, with the uh, with the Christ being Lenin. Uh, and the apostle being Stalin, etc., and they are uh, destroying all the civil liberties you have in, in democracies, and they have to be fought against. Then he is moved to Paris, where he tries to save Europe and France from the from the Nazi uh, aggression, and he, he he did a great job with Roosevelt. And then he is back to DC in 1940. He's put. A, Aside by Roosevelt, but he warned Roosevelt in a very important memo that is emphasized at the first memo ever written about saying to Roosevelt, okay, we have to be supporting the Russian, the Soviet against the Nazi, but we should not, we should be very aware that they will impose their rule. There are dictatorial rules on the Eastern European and on the Chinese, and we sh if we let them do it, and we should be very we should be very cautious on supporting them the way we do uh, to control uh, to take the control of Eastern Europe or not to prevent their action in China. So. He is very active, and he becomes like a, he never he never have a he, he shifted to the Republican. He become friend with Nixon, a very good friend of Nixon. He trained with Nixon in foreign affairs. Is the is Nixon Kissinger before Kissinger in some way, and Nixon acknowledged it, and then he will never be back. To active diplomacy because uh, D-Way lost in 1948, uh, uh, Taft lost the Republican nomination in 1952, Nixon lost toward Kennedy in 1960, Goldwater lost in 1964, and then he published the book uh, after having corrected it 300 times. Yeah, I knew this would be kind of a rabbit hole because there's, there's so much to discuss on this alone. I saw a video where uh, Bullet was warning everyone about Stalin that, you know, the only way to stop Stalin is we have to stand up to him. And it uh, sounded like he was comparing him to uh, the Nazis. So hey, was it he, he said, uh, I think he said that the Soviets or communism is a, a sort of fascism also. Um, the, Bolshe the Bolsheviks are communist fascists or, or something. He was on that. Uh, he had this, uh, but he has an incredible... Um, he was incredible. Uh, uh, let me. Uh, he, he, he could. He could say. Look, he wrote in nineteen. Let me quote you some. He wrote in September nineteen thirty nine, when the war starts between England, France, and uh, 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 and uh, Germany after the invasion of Poland. He says, "Mr. Hitler has already lost this war completely." I rather imagine 
that he thinks he can finish the French and British quickly enough to turn around and smash the Bolshevs. But that is not going to happen. And in the end, the Bolshevs will, will gradually eat like a cancer to Berlin. Then the next stage will be of finishing off Stalin Khan. How? God only knows. My own conviction is that you will have left in the world enough of the spirit that is represented by Jan of Arc to bring the human race to. Hitler and Stalin are twin representatives of Satanism, and I do not believe that they will prevail against the cohort of the law. So that was, I mean, <laughs> that was written in September 1939. I mean, I, th I think it's I think it's easy to compare Bullet to uh, Cassandra, the uh, daughter of King Priam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, cause it, yeah this would be another conversation because um, you know I, I would yes. I'd love to get your take on uh, when when Vichy France was established. Um, God, I forgot the gen the general's name. He was the hero of. of uh... It's gone. Patin, Patin, Patin. Patin sided with Hitler. Um, I know he was an anti-communist, and I think he considered the Soviets, maybe he considered the Soviets a bigger threat. But, you know, one of, one of these days I want to have a conversation, or I think Dustin and I should have a conversation with you about uh, the French role um, as Vichy France, knowing, no, I mean, again, and I want to make this very clear before somebody yells, oh, you must have liked Hitler. No, I didn't. Because <laughs> believe me, they will. Oh yeah. Um that that between Hitler and Stalin, you know, there there's no difference between the two. They were both evil, ruthless and So that is what you say is what Peter thought. Mm -hmm. But was was they but they didn't think even that. They say between Churchill and Hitler we cannot choose and that that is not acceptable. Because Churchill was offering France to merge, you know, at some point in in in, in June to have a merge of the two countries, and so that part of the, the French government could move to North Africa and continue the fight with, with the British government. And the hate of the Brit from some part of the French uh, military was so high that they say, we don't have to choose, we cannot choose between Hitler and, 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 and Churchill. And of course, they had to choose the freedom, the fight for the, for the values of Free democracies, and Churchill was a was one of the best friends of France. Frankly, even he knew what happened to France with the collapse of the military treaty, etc. He was an extraordinary friend of France, and to have these Vichy people side with Hitler against Churchill is still a shame on 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 the history of my country. It's a fascinating book. I really enjoyed reading it, uh, The Madman in the White House. It's it's a fascinating read, but it's a fascinating. These are fascinating figures. And speaking of William Bullitt, your your book almost gives a semi biography of Bullitt, especially during that you know World War One to World War Two period, uh, which I found so fun to read. Um, his interaction with Missy Lehand uh, was always interesting. Uh, but it's the the period is fascinating. Uh, the individuals are fascinating. The book is I, I can't recommend it enough to get, especially if people are interested in knowing about 
the end of World War One and trying to understand Woodrow Wilson. I think this is an essential read. Thank you very much for having me for a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for, for the great question and the discussion we had. Well, thank you. I, I know uh, speaking for both of us, we thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Patrick. And uh, we will we will keep in touch and possibly have a, another conversation in the future about William Bullitt. Thank you very much. All right. Well, dude, that was that was a lot of fun. I, I'm always intrigued by um, just psychoanalysis, uh, that that whole idea. And we as we as we discussed, we love the era of like the World War One, like that topic um, the Wilsonian era, you know, and then going into World War II, but even, even the interwar period, all that stuff is very interesting. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to do our best to have Patrick back on the show, uh, this coming season, which will start up in September, Lord willing, and the Creek don't rise, but that was just, I want to, I want to mention, uh, real quick, Per our discussion. There you go. There's the man. And right there. That is the mother load. Now, let me ask you a question. When you're putting that book, because I'm seeing it through my Zoom very clearly. Are you showing that to the Zoom camera? Or are you showing that to your camera? I'm showing it to my camera. Okay, just making sure. All right. Yeah, because, yeah, because, uh, yeah, and I, I, I already thought that ahead of it. But uh, <laughs> when he, you know, uh, when he was talking about uh, General uh, Smith, I'm, I'm very, very familiar with him. I, you know, if you are a fan of the movie The uh, African Queen, that was uh, German East Africa. It was a four, really a four-year, three-month war that took place over there. And it was uh, and that and that ba- and those that war lasted even beyond November the 11th of uh, 1918. So uh, General Smuts was the guy that led the coalition forces that fought in German East Africa. Yeah, well, interesting. I uh, yeah, I watched uh, African Queen as a kid. Yeah, but but you know the 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 fascinating thing about this book is you know I'm, you know the whole the cycle part is not something that I'm a I'm an expert on. Um, haven't really uh, read much about the whole psychological sciences, um, but the parts that I I really liked are the people that uh, you know the people who are in this book, the historical aspect of it, and it, it's always just a fascinating thing, you know that that uh, bullet um, pretty much. I don't want to say he reported to Edward House, Colonel Edward House, but um, but. Uh, House was a mentor for Bullet, and you know I know we've talked about House before, and I, I've always been real fascinated with with some of the things that took place. But when when he mentioned uh, when Patrick mentioned about the things that Bullet predicted, especially in 1939, I, I mean that to see that far into the future was was fascinating because he was spot on. He, he knew he knew that Stalin was going to be he, he's not a trustworthy guy he's not a good person and and you know in 1939 Stalin and Hitler were allies they both invaded Poland 
And then Stalin went and attacked several other countries, uh, Finland, Romania, uh, the, the three Baltic nations. So, yeah, Stalin was a bad man. Very bad. But, but again, before somebody says something, Hitler was just as evil. So there you go. Yeah, it is interesting because a lot of times we, when I say we, like people generally give Winston Churchill the credit, like a lot of credit for the prescience that he had, especially about Hitler and Stalin. Um, but there were there were several other others, and, and Churchill re- deserves all the credit too. Um, cause he just, he saw things, you know, about people and about things way before it, they happened, which was fantastic. But bullet when, you know, reading this book, like the things that he predicted and he could foresee were just fascinating. And you, and you talk about Colonel house, you know, uh, bullet was, uh, you know, house was his mentor, but bullet was a mentor for George F. Kennan. Um, who was the famous diplomat, uh, the author of The Long Telegram, uh, 1946. We actually had, a, or I actually had the conversation last week when you when you were out with Frank Castigliola, who wrote the biography on George Kennan, um, and William Bullitt is obviously mentioned a lot, a lot in that book. But these people had such foresight about what was going on. We had some really, really brilliant people um, in the early 20th to mid 20th century that just understood people. They understood wickedness um, and the evil of, of mankind, like the potential of that, like, and then they, they predicted it. And sometimes, you know, people would listen. Sometimes they, they didn't, but this, this era of, you know, beginning to the middle of, of the 20th century is just, to me, it's it's fascinating, and to really get to dig into these these individuals was has been a lot of fun. Yeah, I can I can imagine I can imagine. So uh, I, I wish I was able to make the uh, the uh, George Kennan uh, interview, but uh, I was on my way back home. So hey, man, I can't blame you. Look, you if anybody deserves a vacation, I don't know who that person is, but <laughs> I think that you. You know, I think uh, I'm glad that you went on vacation. Okay, yeah, thank you. I'm not going to say you. that you deserve it, it but you know, you know, you know and, we, and uh, you deserves know, we, got uh, hey, deserves got nothing to do with it. You know, I I made it. I also went to go when I was in San Antonio. I went to the battle of uh, the site of two battles uh, before the Texans, Texians, and the Tejanos went and captured um, San Antonio or Bayar, as they called it, uh, from. The, the Mexican army. So uh, took took some videos, took some pictures. So, you know, so much, there's so much to see. So, you know, every day, every day there was something to see in either West Central to West Texas to New Mexico. So it was, it was a fun trip. I, I, I enjoyed it and I uh, hope uh, you and I can uh, make another road trip. I think, I think we should. Yeah, no, we, we should. We need to get, we need to get out uh, sometime soon. Uh, but speaking of Texas history, uh, next week, our good buddy Jody Edward Ginn is going to be joining us to talk about the history of the Texas Rangers. Um, so this is going to be it, it's going to be a good conversation. We had him on, I think, about a year or so ago. So it'll be good stuff. And he actually uh, joined us on our documentary when we went out to Fredericksburg. So that was that was pretty neat. I remember that. I took uh, I took some photos of uh, of some Texas Rangers when I when. I went to a museum, I think it was in Pecos, or either Pecos or Fort Stanton, and uh, 
there was a lot in regards to the Texas Rangers out there. So I took some photos. I'm going to, I'm going to send it to him and get his opinion on them. All right. Well, um, I don't know if you want to say goodbye or if you want to have your little green man, uh, say goodbye, but I think that, well, in, uh, I, I think in, uh, uh, in honor of our uh, recent guest, I think we should tell everyone uh, bonsoir, au revoir, and merci beaucoup. Okay. I wish I could speak French like you, but I can't. So, au revoir. Or maybe we should say bon oui. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Auf Wiedersehen. Don't you dare. <laughs>